thank you. Well, I started off last time I spoke with a proposal story, so I thought I'd tell, tell another one. <laughs> there was once a young man who proposed to his sweetheart. And he said, darling, I want you to know that I love you more than anything in the world. I want you to be my wife. I don't have a yacht or a Rolls Royce like Johnny Brown has, but I do love you. She thought for a moment and then replied, I love you too with all my heart. But tell me more about this Johnny Brown. <laughs> well, that's not love. That is a declaration of love with a divided heart, one that professes to love but is not willing to commit with one's whole being. We're starting a four-week study on the book of James, and James's theme throughout is that we are to be, have a heart that is utterly devoted to God, and that true devotion will be exhibited in how we treat others. There are several sub-themes that we will explore, but through it all, James is reminding us of the first and grace, great, greatest commandment, and that is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he will remind us that in light of that love, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. In James 2.8, he calls this the royal law. We'll look at that next week. A true and sincere love of God will manifest itself in our love for others. James will remind us what that looks like with multiple examples in ways we can all relate to. James was the brother of Jesus, along with several other siblings in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. He was, he's always listed first, so we, th we think he might be the oldest of Jesus' siblings. John 7, 5 states that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. So we can assume that James was one of these unbelieving siblings. It appears that James' unbelief in the claims of his brother continued up to the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Paul writes that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to a number of people. And then it says he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and then finally to Paul himself. Jesus' appearance to Paul is well recorded for us in the book of Acts. We looked at it last year, the Damascus Road conversion. But we don't have a similar account of Jesus' appearance to James. But it must have been just as life-changing. James becomes not only a believer in the lordship of Jesus, but by the time Peter is released from prison in Acts 12, James has become the leader of the Jerusalem church. I find it interesting that these two men, James and Paul, had a direct confrontation from Jesus that resulted in their turning their lives around and becoming Christ's followers. These two men who are so often compared in the focus of their teachings and their writings. We'll go into further detail in the apparent differences between James and Paul next week. But suffice it to say that our Lord singled out these two men to each have a unique calling and a unique ministry. 
it's also obvious that both these men were saved only by the unmerited grace of the Lord Jesus. James puts it this way in our passage today in James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Or as the NIV says, he chose to give us birth by the word of truth. James, along with Paul, would confidently assert that his salvation came only through the undeserved, freely given grace of the Lord Jesus. The book of James was most likely the first book, the first book of the New Testament written around AD 45 to 48. This is a scant 15 years after the resurrection. This is before the Jerusalem Council that is recorded in Acts 15 and before the wide spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. The church is still mainly based in Jerusalem. Well, it still is in Jerusalem, based in Jerusalem. And it's predominantly Jewish. In verse 1, James addresses the book to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, Christian Jews who are scattered among the nations. Remember that there were thousands who believed on the day of Pentecost. Many who came from far-flung lands. They the, the apostles spoke, or the disciples spoke to them in their own language. And so many of these uh, believers would have taken their new life in Christ with them as they returned home. Acts 8 tells us that after the stoning of Stephen, there was a great persecution and there was a scattering of the believers. These small groups of Jewish Christians dispersed across the Roman Empire were experiencing persecution from their faith, possibly from two sides. One, from their non-Christian Jewish community, and the other side, their Gentile neighbors. And so they were in need of encouragement and exhortation. This is the letter of James. It is practical, it is personal, sometimes, as Jenny would say, in your face. <laughs> It is above all communal. It is addressed to people who are living in community who are surrounded by opposition to their faith and their way of life. James is saying, dear Christian, when you are in an environment that is hostile to what you believe, this is how you should live. He's not going to talk a lot about how, what you should believe. He's going to say, this is how you should live. And just maybe, we'll find it relevant for us as well. So let's look at James 1, our chapter for today. James introduces himself as James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is one of several places where James will implicitly equate Jesus with the Lord God. You think about that. James, he probably nobody on earth knew Jesus as well as James, as James did. They were bunkmates when they were kids. Uh, and yet he has full confidence in the divinity of Jesus. 
But going back to the salutation, James is the only New Testament writer who refers to himself as a servant without listing any other qualifications. He could have pulled rank. James, the brother of Jesus, or James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. But he doesn't allude to his status. He's content with being a servant. James will not ask his readers to do or be anything other than he himself has given. James then goes on to address the persecutions and hardships these Jewish Christians are experiencing. And the rest of the chapter should be seen in light of the trials and temptations his readers are going through. And of course, the trials and temptations that we all go through. His first charge is to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. Kent Hughes, who's written a marvelous book based on a series of sermons he gave on the book of James, says this is an utterly irrational call and quite a way for James to start his letter. We've studied this year how not to comfort people who are suffering. (laughs) This is one of those things, what not to say probably. Oh, how nice, a letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko, Kent Hughes says. James is not saying the trials are joyful in themselves, and he's certainly not asking us to enjoy our trials. That would be irrational. James is saying, count it all joy. To consider or regard our trials as a means to a higher goal, a future benefit. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not enjoy the cross. But he understood it would lead to a glorious result, the assurance of future good. We can choose to trust God and his promises. And notice it's not if you experience trials, it's when we will all experience trials without exception. So what's the end result for which we can have hope? James says we can know, and that's a a know that's underlined and bolded. We can know that the testing of our faith will produce endurance or steadfastness, and that steadfastness results in a character that is complete, mature, and whole. A person who is able to fully carry out the purpose for which we were designed, our intended purpose. This is not ethical perfection. We still, unfortunately, sin. But it's a maturity that enables us to fulfill the ministry and life that we were called to do. That sounds pretty amazing, right? Wouldn't we all want to be mature, to be whole, to be living out the life and calling that But how do we do that? How can we be that kind of person, especially in the midst of our trials? James's answer is clear, and it's the theme of our study 
on wisdom this year. It's written on the front of your, your books. It's written on the second page of your books. It's written on the posters around church. James says, if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to us. I love J.B. Phillips' translation of this verse. He says, we have to ask God who gives generously to all without making them feel foolish or guilty. Isn't that lovely? God gives generously with an open hand. And he gives without reproach, or as Phillips says, without making us feel foolish or guilty. God does not respond to our petition and then heap insults upon us for asking. Didn't you just ask for wisdom? What'd you do with the wisdom I gave you last week? (laughs) He could give us scornful words. He gives us divine wisdom. Don't be afraid to ask for wisdom. There's no reason to cringe before God, wondering if he will be generous. We can ask fully believing, fully trusting, fully confident that God is eager to shower us with his wisdom. We can have full assurance that our trials are opportunities for God to rain down his blessing upon us. And in the process, we will grow in wisdom and perseverance and maturity. So all the wisdom we need comes from God, and what we receive from God is far more valuable than earthly riches. James calls it the crown of life. The Bible speaks of many crowns, crowns of grace, crowns of glory, crowns of flowers. (laughs) But this is the only reference to a crown of life. A crown is a mark of honor and dignity. So we're promised not just life, which is pretty amazing, right? We're, We're promised the crown of life, a higher quality of life, an eternal enjoyment of life. And who is promised this crown of life? If you look at verse 12, the crown of life is promised to those who, who what? To those who obey? To those who show themselves worthy? No, it's to those who love him. This is James reminding us that our chief responsibility is to love God. But here's the thing. In the midst of our trials, our natural inclination is not to ask God for wisdom. In fact, in the midst of our trials, our natural inclination is to cast blame, especially when we're tempted to sin. When we experience trials, God's intent is for it to grow our faith into maturity. But what if in the midst of our trials, we give in to the temptation to sin, to blame God for our difficulties, to rely on our own wisdom or the wisdom of the world, to allow our love for the Lord to diminish and to wander from the God we love. And when we sin, we point the blame at God for the circumstances we claim drew us to the sin. James utterly rebukes such thinking. 
Temptation to sin comes not from our trials, not from our circumstances, but from an all too familiar source. The temptation comes from our own evil desires. We, we want to sin. Our trials are not invitations by God to sin. Our trials are just a handy excuse to practice the sin we already want to do. It's important here to understand that temptations are not sin. We all experience temptations of various kinds. No one is so holy or so pious as to be without temptation. We're not immune. Jesus is, I mean, James' teaching is that first, the trials we experience are not temptations from God. He simply does not tempt us to sin. When trials come, God's intent is to purify and refine our faith, to help us persevere and become mature and complete believers, to receive the crown of life. And second, if we're honest, honest with ourselves, our desire to sin comes not from our circumstances. Our desire to sin comes squarely within ourselves. Dwight L. Moody recognized this when he quipped, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I know. (laughs) You bet. Well, we have two various serious progressions in this chapter. The warnings could not be more serious. The first is the progression we've been looking at. We experience trials. We come to God in faith, relying on his wisdom. This leads us to perseverance and steadfastness, leading to maturity, and eventually the crown of life. Life. The second progression is a sinful desire that entices us to go astray, leading to the birth of sin. And then, he says, sin that is fully grown. In other words, ongoing habitual sin which leads inevitably to death, he says, death instead of life. Well, James has addressed the inclination we have to blame God for our temptation to sin in the midst of trials, and now in verses 16 through 18, he brings us back to the utter goodness and faithfulness of God. As in verse five, where James has said, God gives generously without reproach, he reiterates God's nature and his attributes. He's a generous giver. All good gifts without exception come raining down from the Father of lights. I love that. And the most marvelous, most extraordinary, most stunning gift of all, the fact that he brought us forth with the word of truth. Brought us forth speaks of recreation, of being reborn at the time of our conversion, when our spiritual new life became real. The word of truth is the gospel, the living power of Jesus to bring forth spiritual life in those who are spiritually dead. Are you experiencing difficult times right now? Have you known trials and hardships in your life? Hear what James says. God is the source of our salvation. He will not abandon us in our trials. He is continually pouring down on us his good gifts, including his wisdom. He will not change. 
Our love for him may waver and grow dim, but there's no variation or shadow in God's love for us. He deserves our full commitment, our deep devotion, and all our love. So James has given us great truth about our God, who he is and what he so generously gives us when we are facing trials. What are some specific actions we can take to withstand trials and temptations? How can we be prepared to live wisely, to be mature and complete believers? James will give us specific areas in which to demonstrate God's wisdom and thereby withstand the hardships of life. The first is to be quick to hear the word of God. We're also told to be slow to speak. It's kind of hard to listen when you're talking, isn't it? I found that. I can't do both at the same time. We're to be slow to speak and quick to listen. In other words, we're not to be hasty or ill-considered in our reactions. In fact, James says we are to be slow to anger. Slow to anger is a persistent attitude. We don't allow ourselves to get easily riled up. We don't feed indignation or grievance. We don't harbor resentment. James says here, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. This may not be easy. If we feel beset by troubles, it's easy to put fuel to our anger and bitterness. James was crystal clear. This sort of self-centered anger, the kind that is slow to listen and quick to speak, will lead us away from God and his good gifts. James exhorts us to put away that kind of wickedness and put out the welcome mat to the word of truth, the truth that God has given us through his salvation. The second action James exhorts us to do is to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And here James will touch on something that's definitely up in your face. He says that we often deceive ourselves And then he thoroughly denounces such willful self-deception. He says, in effect, I understand, this is the Linda paraphrase. He says, we listen to sermons and inspirational music and Christian messages and podcasts. We read our Bible and daily devotionals and wonderful Christian books. We fill our lives with Christian content. We are blessed, right? All of this content is amazing and wonderful. But James's point is that we measure our godliness by what we intake rather than the outward expression of our lives. Are we practicing all that we read and hear? Are we doers of the word? We may feel convicted by God's word, but when we put the Bible down or walk out of church or turn the Christian program off, is it soon forgotten? If so, James says, we're deceiving ourselves. Well, how can we avoid this self-deception? 
James is not saying the solution is to avoid hearing the word, to avoid Christian content. He's not saying that. Instead, he says he encourages us to look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, persevering, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Yogi Berra once said, you can see a lot by looking. I just love Yogi Berra. (laughs) James is talking about taking our time to study and ponder. The verb used in verse 25, the one who looks, suggests stooping or bending toward in order to observe. Does that ring any bells? It's the same verb used three times in the Gospels to describe the disciples and Mary looking into the empty tomb. You know the difference. This is not a glance. This is looking intently with all our attention, eager to see and discover. And here comes the paradox of the book of James. What are we stooping down to look at? The perfect law, the law of liberty. The only other time this phrase, the law of liberty, is used in the New Testament is also in James, in in chapter 2. What is James talking about? There are dozens of commands in this little four-chapter book. How can he call it the law of liberty when he's so busy telling us what we're supposed to do? Well, remember that at this time, the Jews would have understood the law as the law of Moses, a set of specific commandments such as Sabbath observance and circumcision. As Jewish people came to faith and realized it was the death and resurrection of Jesus that saved them from their sins, a natural question would be, what laws were they required to observe? James follows Jesus' teachings, such as that found on the Sermon on the Mount. Neither James nor James, neither Jesus nor James gives us a commandment on how to observe the Lord's day. Circumcision is not specified as a requirement, neither do they expound on any dietary or ritualistic observances. Jesus and James are simply silent on these topics. So what are they talking about? It's the royal law. The law of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We are freed from Mosaic legalism. But we are bound by the law to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, James says, we're careful to speak, not using words to harm others. We show our compassion for those who are poor and defenseless, the marginalized in our society, those who are afflicted. Even in the midst of our own trials, we're looking at how we can show love to others. The Puritans had a saying I thought about a lot, especially in relation to this chapter this week. They said, doers of the word are the best hearers. Have you found that? How much more you can comprehend the God's word when you start practicing it. Well, there's a story taken from Our Daily Bread. 
about four pastors discussing the merits of the various translations of the Bible. One liked a particular version best because of its simple, beautiful English. Another preferred a more scholarly edition because it was closer to the original Hebrew and Greek. Still another liked a more contemporary version because of its up-to-date vocabulary. The fourth minister was silent for a moment and then said, I like my mother's translation best. Surprised, the other three men said they didn't know that his mother had translated the Bible. Yes, he replied. She translated it into life. And it was the most convincing translation I've ever seen. So let's all be faithful Bible translators, shall we? Let's study the word carefully and exhibit the truth of the word in the way we live in community. Loving others, fulfilling the royal law, the law of liberty. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this message from James. Thank you for being a generous, loving, wise God. Help us to love you fully and completely and to demonstrate that love in our love for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.